Hi there. It is great to see all of you. Um, it is a great day. I, I mean, I'm blown away by the video and just, uh, I mean, that's why we do what we do, um, is to see people's lives change, to see people come into a relationship with Jesus and watch their lives be transformed and help every single one of us continue to take our next step with God. Um, and that, that's, uh, that's in, for the last 11 years, that's what we've been trying to do. And uh, I'm glad so many of you have been with us for some of the journey, part of the journey, now for the future of the journey. And so it's, uh, it's a great thing that, um, that we're all here together. So um, anyway, uh, um, about a year ago, my, my family and I we were on vacation at Disney World. And um, we, after a day of walking the parks and all of that, we, we got back to the, to the hotel and put, um, I put my son in the tub and I gave him a bath. And then afterwards, uh, put on his PJs and uh, brushed his teeth. And kind of what I, when he was a year old, he still does it now. But now he's kind of, he kind of knows how to brush his teeth. But back then, he would want to brush his teeth. So after I would brush his teeth, I would let him hold the toothbrush, which basically meant he would just chew on the toothbrush for a while and called that brushing his teeth, however many teeth he had at the time. And um, so I would hold him, I'd brush his teeth and then let him hold the toothbrush for a little bit and he'd chew on it. So then I, I turned to Carrie and I said, hey, I just want you to know his... Um, you know, I'm, I'm done brushing his teeth. And as I was talking to my wife to tell her kind of the update, he took the toothbrush and stabbed me in the eye with it. And uh, it was like uh, painful. Um, so the bad news is it really hurt. The good news is my eye was minty fresh. Um, and uh, but the, the really bad news was the whole next day I couldn't see out of my right eye. So I was pretty much like this the, the entire day. It was really sunny out and uh, it was very difficult. But even though I couldn't see uh, out of one eye, I still tried to drive because that's just what smart people do. And uh, but I tried to drive with one eye. I don't know if you've ever tried that. By the way, I don't recommend that. But I, and, and then not only was I trying to drive, I was trying to drive on streets that I don't really know that well. So I've got one eye closed. and I'm in the car with my two children and my wife. And, um, you know, the weird thing is, is that, you know, both of your eyes working properly is what gives you proper depth perception. So when you close one eye and you're driving, you can't really tell how far the car in front of you is. So I thought the car, I'd think the car in front of me was like, oh, that thing's like 400 yards in front of me, when in fact it was like 40 feet in front of me, which led for some very interesting uh, driving. So uh, I, you know, it was, it was the, the weirdest experience and sensation, kind of not knowing how far things were. Um, but even though I had kind of one eye closed, I was making a lot of pirate jokes which my daughter thought were hilarious because they were pretty awesome. And, um, you know, my son would hear my daughter laugh and he'd laugh too. My wife didn't think it was all that funny, um, but my driving did help her prayer life considerably uh, because she was praying a lot while we were, while we were driving. And now, now here's the thing. The, this is, I believe that this in kind of story form is the challenge that all of us have. All of us are somewhere and, you know, we're at point A and we all know that God wants us to be at point B. There's a place that we ultimately want to be. And we call it, we can call it whatever we want to call it. We can call it a happy marriage. We can call it a successful career. We can call it financial security. We can call it a life with purpose and meaning. Um, and, you know, we just want to contribute and do something great um, in, in the world. And, but the, the problem that we have is the same problem that I had. And that is that our vision isn't what it should be. 
And so when our vision isn't what it should be, it leads to all kinds of problems. Now, let me give you the bad news and then we'll spend the rest of our time talking about the good news. But the bad news is, is that all of us lack vision to some degree, right? None of us see things crystal clear. And so instead, we only see things in, in, in kind of a fractal way. We see partially how we're supposed to see things because we see things from our own limited perspective. I, I realized this years ago, um, the, the first time when my wife and I were just dating, um, I, we went to Boston to visit my family. I thought she might be the one, which I turned out to be correct. Um, and so I, um, I took her to Boston to meet my family and we were going to stay at my brother's and um, uh, one of the things that we did about the, first, the second day that we were there is that I took her to Fenway Park and we went to see a Red Sox game. And so this was back when the Red Sox weren't all that great. And uh, so you could get tickets for like 10 bucks and sit in really good seats or fairly good seats. So I'm talking to a guy outside and the guy says, hey, I've got seats behind, the, behind home plate for 10 bucks. And I said, well, that sounds that's like the right price. And he said, well, here's the only thing. One seat, the view is a little bit obstructed. And uh, by the way, that was a bit of an under, you know, like that was a slight under exaggeration. It was like, you know, kind of obstructed. Um, so I said, OK, I gave him the 20 bucks and we go in to see the game. And uh, now let me tell you what really the seats were. There was one seat that was perfect. You could see everything, the whole field. It was great. You could see the, the, the whole field, everything. There was another seat right next to it that was directly behind a steel column. As all you could see was the steel column, and then you could turn and maybe see like a hot dog vendor. That's it. So then I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm really supposed to do. I mean, what does a good guy do? Um, so what I did is I put Carrie in the bad seat and gave her the play-by-play. And um, I'm like, Carrie, they just hit a home run. Just clap a little bit. All right, you know. So now here's the challenge, right? The challenge is all of us have an obstructed view. The problem is we all think we're sitting in the good seat and we see everything. We see life, perspective. We see everything the way we're supposed to. The truth of the matter is most of us are sitting in the seat behind the column and we don't see everything. And the reason that we don't see everything is because emotions get in the way that obstruct our view. Past decisions that haven't been so good get in the way. Past experience that hasn't gone so well for us get in the way. And all of that makes getting to our destination a little bit more difficult. But when a person comes to know Jesus and embraces a relationship with Jesus, forget, um, under, you know, receives the forgiveness and grace of God and begins growing in that, there's something amazing that happens that kind of the, the fog begins to lift, the obstructions begin to, we begin to kind of see past them a little bit and we start to see clearly. You see, um, in fact, in uh, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, I put it in your notes, um, there, this, uh, this idea of vision the, that God tells Habakkuk these words. He says, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. That God has this vision for us and that he wants to make it plain for us. And if we're willing to embrace his vision for us, that we could actually run and get to the destination that He has for us. And that's why we're starting a brand new series of teachings today that we're calling Blueprint. Uh, discovering God's vision for your life. Because we want to see God's vision plainly for each of us. And what we're going to learn is how God reveals this vision in a person's life as we walk through the book of Nehemiah together. So if you would, if you'd open to the book of Nehemiah, um, it's in the Old Testament. 
It's before you get to the Psalms. You get to the Psalms, you went too far, hang a left, go back a little bit. Um, you'll, you'll get there right before, you know, before Job and all that. Um, you'll, you'll get there. Um, some people think the book of Job is the book of Job, like it's the classified ads of the Bible. It's not. It's, it's Job. Just keep going. You'll find it. Um, now, here's the thing. The way that we're going to work these messages is that we're going to talk about how God births a vision. And that's the title of our message today is the birth of a vision. And we're going to talk about how we take that vision that God births in us and God works these steps in our lives and we see vision become reality in our lives. And so really, in, 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 in essence, every message is going to build one on top of the other. So I invite you to be with us for each week of this series as we build one on top of the other so you can really discover the uh, vision that God has for your life. Now, let me give you a little bit of background because it's important for us. If we're going to understand this book, we have to understand the backdrop in which um, the, the, the history behind the, where this book was written so we understand the context. Um, Nehemiah was written about the year 445 B.C., okay, uh, during the time of what's called the captivity. I'm going to, uh, just so you know, I'm going to go a little history channel on you for a minute. So if you're not into history channel, now is a great time to check your email. Uh, if you're into history channel, this is a great time to really like tune in for a few minutes because this is going to give you the backdrop for this entire series, okay? Um, Kings, we all know King David, right? David and Goliath, that guy. Um, David dies. He gives the, turns the kingdom over to Solomon, his son. Solomon dies in about 931 B.C. After uh, King Solomon dies, the kingdom, um, event, after, in just a few years, is divided. Uh, so it's not this, Israel is no longer one country. It's essentially two. The ten tribes to the north, or what's called the northern kingdom, or the kingdom of Israel... Then there's the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, what are called the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, Jerusalem is in the southern uh, kingdom. That's the capital of the southern kingdom. Now, the the other thing that's important to note is that the northern kingdom, almost immediately after Solomon's death, they begin worshiping idols and other gods. And so God then brings judgment on them and carries them away because God has told them over and over that if you don't change your ways, these I'm I'm not going to protect you when these invading armies come they're just going to carry you away um, because of your idolatry well sure enough the the king the the country or the 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 empire that was ruling most of the world at that time were called the assyrians the assyrians came in 722 bc and wiped out the 10 northern tribes and took them away captive Um, so you would think that now the southern kingdom would watch what happened to their sister kingdom, right, their, their brothers and sisters in Israel, and say, this would be like the scared straight moment where they'd say, man, we could better start really getting serious about our relationship with God because they started worshiping idols and got, carried, and got carried away into captivity. Well, it had really no effect on them. And so eventually they started worshiping idols, and then God said, well, here's what's going to happen. And uh, in 586 B.C., Assyria had been, prior to that, Assyria had been conquered by the Babylonians. So now the Babylonians are ruling most of the known world at that time. Well, the Babylonians come in 586 and wipe out the, the, uh, the southern kingdom, carry them away captive, and they destroy the temple, they destroy the city of Jerusalem, and they destroy the walls surrounding the city uh, of Jerusalem. But this captivity wasn't forever. Because what, what God had said to them was that this captivity was God's discipline on Israel, but it wouldn't be forever, that it would be for 70 years. And that after this season, God would bring them back 
into the land, and never again would they worship idols. And, the, and it's true, to this day, Israel has never gone back to worshiping idols after that, that 70 years of, of captivity. It's kind of like God's version of time out. All right? So, um, <laughs> which it kind of was. Um, so what happens is, is that, um, and then the prophets came on the scene saying it wasn't going to be forever, it was going to be for 70 years. In fact, I put it in your notes here in Second Chronicles 36. This is what happened. Uh, it says, um, in all the, the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures from the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and his leaders, all these they, they, he took to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned its palaces with fire, destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away from Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Now, um, the 70 years came and went. And so after the 70 years, the Babylon has been taken over now by the Persians. And the Persians are now the ruling group there in, uh, in, in, in the known world. And the king at that time says, if you're Jewish and you want to go back to Israel, that's okay. And now there's two or three million Jews living in the kingdom of Persia and only 50,000 return to rebuild their homeland. In fact, they went because they wanted to rebuild the temple, but they didn't do it. And so God calls two prophets, one by the name of Haggai, the other by the name of Zechariah. You say, I wonder what those guys did. The good news is those guys have a book out. So you can check out Haggai and Zechariah. And uh, they're in the Old Testament. You can read their story. And, um, and so they came on the scene. And so 20 years after these 50,000 people went back, they finished rebuilding the temple. A few years after that, there's many more people go back to rebuild the city of Jerusalem under the direction of a, a priest by the name of Ezra. And you say, I wonder what happened there. Ezra has a book out. You can kind of hang out with him for a little bit and see what happens there. But his whole thing is to motivate the people to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So now, where we stand in history around 445 B.C., it's about 14 years or so after Ezra has gone back, the temple has been rebuilt, Jerusalem has been rebuilt, but the walls are still broken down um, around the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is very important for us to note because the walls of the, of the city of Jerusalem will be the catalyst that ignites God's vision for Nehemiah um, at, at this time. So if you're keeping score at home, um, it's been 140 years since the captivity. And now, so the 70 years were up about 70 years ago. And now they're, now it's, it's this, God is allowing the people to go back. So it's, it's with this backdrop that we begin our journey in Nehemiah, and it's with this same understanding. The way that God birthed a vision in Nehemiah is the same way that God wants to birth a vision in you and me. And that's why we're going to look very carefully to say, how did God birth this vision in Nehemiah? Because when we discover that, it's three simple things of how God birthed a vision in him. And if we will simply do the things that Nehemiah did, we will see God birth of same vision um, in us. So look at Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and here's what we'll read. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in the Shushan, or I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, uh, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates 
are burned with fire. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the thing. Remember, three things I want to tell you about how God births a vision in us. Number one is this, is that if I want to understand um, the, the, the vision that God has birthed in me, I have to understand my passion. I have to understand my passion. Uh, when I was in college, I think I, I've probably told you some of you this story before, but um, when I was in college, I used to work for this company that, that manufactured home accessories. And um, I got hired to do some sales, and then I got hired, uh, so it was like sales part of the time, and then I had this very interesting job description, which was do whatever anyone else doesn't want to do. So that's kind of was my job. I was like the mop-up guy. I just, you know, whatever anybody didn't want to do, that's what I got stuck doing. So um, everyone also in this company, everyone in the company had a title except me. It was the weirdest thing. Like the customer service department was two people, the customer service manager and the customer service assistant manager. I'm thinking like, what are they managing each other? Um, like it didn't make any sense. So anyway, there was like the shipping manager. It was like one person. They're managing themselves. And uh, it was very awkward. So because I, all I did was everything that everybody didn't want to do, um, I, I gave myself a title, which was the jerk work manager. Like any, all the you know, dumb stuff that people didn't want to do, that's what I did. And so I gave myself that title. I even made myself like a little plaque. Um, and uh, now my boss thought it was hilarious. Interestingly, he didn't change the title, which that was kind of weird. Um, but one of my tasks, um, this was like 500 years ago, okay, before like, you know, I, I don't even know if I'd ever even seen a laptop at this time. Um, you know, the computer I had was a 386 that I thought was pretty fast, okay, just to kind of give you an, an idea. Some of you are like, what's a 386? Like, you know, anyway, uh, we, I'll talk about that some other time. And uh, but, so here's the thing, here's what happens. Um, we worked with all of these reps all over the country that would go to furniture stores meet with the buyers, show them the pictures of the accessories that we had, and then they'd place orders. So um, we'd get, they'd basically come to these meetings with like all these different photo albums of these, uh, of, of, of these different accessories. So I would have to take the pictures, and then I'd have to put stickers on the back of the pictures. And so it was the most tedious task. And then these guys would, because every few months there was a new line that came out, and so every time the new line came out, I would have to put together all the new pictures and all the new um, and, and put all this new stickers on on this stuff. And so anyway, um, so I would do this. And I mean, it would take forever to do. And so people would walk by and they say, hey, Bob, what are you doing? And I would say, I'm changing the world one sticker at a time. And uh, and I was being completely sarcastic. And um, but now let me fast forward you three years later. After this, I graduated from college, and I'm actually now, um, I had been teaching at this college, and then they needed someone to be the administrator, and so I was now running the college. Um, and I was, um, I was sending out some catalogs. Um, and so I go into our, the, li- the school library, I mean, they have these huge tables, so I kind of spread myself out, I've got the catalogs, I've got the envelopes, I've got letters, all the stuff, I'm stuffing it. And then once I get my assembly line done, I start sticking stickers on the, uh, on the envelopes, and then it hits me. I'm doing the same thing I was doing three years ago. Now, here's the weird part, right? I'm still sticking stickers on stuff. Like, I have never been able to escape this, okay? And here's the, this is the weird part, though. But this I'm doing with joy. And I, and I learned something this, th- that day that was just mind-blowing to me. I learned a couple of things. The first thing is that no matter what I was doing, I was still serving God. That whether I was, you know, working at a college or, or I was working at this place that, 
you know, sold home accessories. I'm still serving the Lord. But the other thing that I realized was, is that there was putting stickers on something in one environment to me was totally cumbersome and just an annoyance. In another environment, um, it was exciting and thrilling for me. And the, and the question is why? And the reason is, is because one task was connected to my passion and the other task was not. Even though this, it was the same task, it, one was connected to what I was passionate about and the other wasn't. Because I had this belief that this, this, the label that I was putting on that envelope could go to someone who could come to our school and become the next great preacher in our generation. And, I, and so I saw this as a holy thing that I was doing because we were sending this to guys that were serious about serving the Lord uh, at, 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 some, at, at some level. Whereas the other thing was, I mean, these guys are just basically selling, you know, wall sconces and pottery and all that. And I didn't really think that was all that interesting to me because one was connected to my passion and the other wasn't. Now, here's the thing, and this is the thing that's so important, is that we have to understand something about ourselves if we're going to understand God's vision and discover God's vision for our lives. We have to understand and, and figure out what it is that God has given us a passion for. And these are some questions that we need to ponder, all right? What are the things that make your heart beat fast? What are the things that keep you up at night? What are the things that cause you to wake up early in the morning? These are the things that, that you realize that if you discover these things, you will discover the passion that God has given you. Because if, if we look at Nehemiah in the, in the opening verses that we read, if you look at verse 1, it says, It came to pass in the month of Chislev, and if you're not familiar with Chislev on your calendar, Chislev in the Jewish calendar was around November, December on our calendar. In the 20th year, that would be the 20th reign of Artaxerxes, who was the king. He says, I was in Shushan, the citadel. Shushan uh, um, was the capital of Persia. Persia is like modern day Iran. If you're kind of, I should have brought you a map. I didn't. I apologize. Um, I'll bring it next time. It's a big map. I just roll it out. No, it's uh, put it on the screen. Uh, But here's the thing. So he's in, he's in the capital city of Persia. But then he says, I was not only there, but I was in the citadel. Now, a citadel, if you're not aware, was a fortified palace. So, this was the center. I mean, the palace is where the king was, right? So everyone that lived in this empire was trying to get to Shushan, right? Because there was a song, if you could make it in Shushan, if you could make it there, you could make it anywhere, right? You know, I mean, I'm sure that there was some version of Frank Sinatra in the Persian Empire singing, it's up to you, Shushan, Shushan. Anyway, so, by the way, some things aren't in the notes, and that was one of them. Um, so here's what happened. So, they get to, he, everybody's trying to get to Shushan, right? Because that's kind of the center of everything. Not only are they trying to get to Shushan, but if they could get to the citadel, the palace, that's where everybody wants to be. So the first thing that we note about Nehemiah is that he is a person of some importance. Because he says, I'm in Shushan and I'm in the citadel. I am in the, the very epicenter of power there in, uh, in, in Persia. But even though physically he's in the power center of the known world at that time, his heart is actually 800 miles away in Jerusalem. In, as he thinks about the walls of the city that have been broken down. Now here's the question that we need to ask. And the question is, what's the big deal if the walls are broken? Right? I mean, you drive around your neighborhood, you see somebody's fence that falls down, you probably don't start to cry. Right? This guy hears about the walls of a city. In the next verse we're going to read that he hears about this and he just breaks down. Like he just falls apart and starts crying like, buddy, get it together. You know, I mean, like, so what does this mean? Now, you have to understand a little bit of um, the significance of the walls of a city. Um, 
the walls of a city were your only defense if your army has failed. So if, an, if you have, there's an invading force coming against you, you would send out your army. You would send out your military to fight that military that was coming against you. If, that, if your military failed, your only defense between the invading army and you was the wall surrounding your city. That was the last line of defense. So to say that, and in the Bible it's just a, kind of a euphemism that if the walls of a city were broken down, it means that the city's been conquered. And that it remains conquered. That they are no longer a sovereign state because if the, cities, if the walls are broken, anyone can come and go and take over and, and control this, this city. And so now, the other thing though is that the walls of a city spoke of a nation's God. And Nehemiah's heart was broken because when he heard that the walls of the city were broken because he knew that this picture of Jerusalem dishonored the name of God. And my friends, I believe that this is one of the important things for us to note. And one of the keys to note about Nehemiah is that he found his passion in life by following his passion for God. That you and I don't find our blueprint for life. We don't find God's vision for our lives in a vacuum. Instead, we discover what we want to discover is not just not our vision, but God's vision for our lives, because all every single one of us wants to do something meaningful in our lives. But then something happens. And I don't know why it happens to some of us, but we want to do something meaningful with our lives. And then we just end up, you know, so most people want to do something meaningful, but most people end up with a job. And it's like, I don't know what happened. They want to, you know, make a life uh, for, for themselves, but they end up just making a living. We want to do something significant with our lives, but then many of us, here's what happens. We end up every night sitting on the couch, watching TV, watching people, watching other people do something significant. And, and listen, and if it frustrates us, that's a good thing. It should frustrate us. But I want you to notice something about Nehemiah, and this is the thing that's so important for us, and it has direct relation as to how it works for each of us, and that is many of us don't discover God's vision for our lives because we don't want to get uncomfortable. That if we want to discover God's passion and vision for our lives, we have to be willing to sacrifice for it. In fact, in the, in the verses that we... Um, that I put in your notes in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says this about Jesus. It says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and, endured, and, and, and despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. There was a vision that, God had, that, that the Father had given him that, it, that was people being reconciled to the Father. But listen, there was a sacrifice, there was the cross, there, there was uh, something that had to happen. Listen, it wasn't just, well, it's all roses for everybody to be reconciled. No, no, no. There was a time of sacrifice so that that vision could become a reality. And listen, and we're going to learn this in, the ne in our next study when we talk about how God builds the vision and, and, and the part that God plays um, behind the scenes, the work that God does behind the scenes in seeing our vision become a reality. But Nehemiah is, is going to have to... Um, he realizes that fulfilling God's vision for his life, if he wants to do it, is going to involve sacrifice. It's going to involve, it's going to cost him his position. It's going to cost him his title. It's going to cost him his reputation. And it's going to cost him his comfortable lifestyle. But 25 years later, we're still talking about him. because, And he's still inspiring us to pursue God's vision for each of our lives. 
because he was willing to step out and say, my, the goal in my life is not just creature comforts. It's to do something significant that actually connects with the heart of God and the mission that God has for this planet and that we get to be part of it. And so as we look at it, he says, listen, God, I'm, I'm open to what, the blueprint that you have for my life, for the vision that you have for my life. But it begins with him recognizing the passion that God has put in his own heart. But it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't mean that he's like, well, I'm really passionate about this. And then he just goes off and does it. I want you to notice the second thing that he does. And that's what happens in verse four. Check this out. He says, and they said to me, the survivors, I'm sorry, that's verse three. It says, and so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. The first thing that we said is, is that I have to understand my passion. The second thing in in the birthing of a vision is that I need to hear God's direction. There's so much in this one verse um, that we could talk about, but I just want to focus on one thing in particular. And that is that Nehemiah doesn't simply have passion and then start running towards Jerusalem. Instead, it's this powerful picture that while his instinct may be to run as fast as I can to Jerusalem, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit down. Sit down. The walls are broken. God's given you a passion. Why don't you go do it? No, no, no. I'm going to sit. And the Bible says that he mourns and he weeps and he fasts and he prays. Listen, fasting is a forgotten spiritual discipline. Yet can I tell you that when it comes to discovering God's vision, it's like a spiritual nuclear bomb. Um, Listen, and I'll tell you this. I get emails all the time from people. That they'll say, Pastor Bob, here's what's happening. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. And I'll tell you that this is usually my response. But 90% of the time, this is my response. They'll say, I don't know what to do. What should I do? I'm so confused. And I'll respond back and I'll say, you fast for the next three days. And instead of eating, you pray and read the Bible and then call me back. What? (laughs) Don't mess with my meal plan. You know, and and, and listen, and I'll say, well, you know, because we can talk all day long. But you really don't need to hear from me, per se. You really need to hear from God. And here's what I know, is that fasting has the ability to cut through all all the junk and really show God, God, I'm really serious about this. Because we can talk to people and get some advice and kind of go back and forth and all that. But listen, when you you decide to fast, um, it's like telling God, God, I'm really serious about this. And some people think that fasting for spiritual reasons, and I know that fasting is very common um, if you're going to go in for a test or something at the doctor or whatever. But sometimes people think that fasting for spiritual reasons is a radical thing. Do you know, according to Jesus, it's very common and should be practiced regularly? In fact, listen to what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 6. He says, moreover, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But then your father, who is in the secret place, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. You see, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say if you fast, but you might want to underline this. He says when you fast, because fasting is a normal part of the Christian life. And listen, throughout history, many Christians have made it a regular practice 
to fast once a week, twice a week. And I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm saying, but, but the, in the moments that we really need to hear from God, if you want to hear from God for real, you take some time to fast and you will hear from Him. And that's why sometimes when people take me up on that offer, um, I'll say, you fast for the next three days and then email me back. And then I don't hear from them. And then I'll be like, hey, how's it going? Hey, fasted, heard from God, don't need you. All right, thanks. Well, I'm glad it's going well. And, um, but this is the thing. The thing that, that, that uh, Jesus says is if you're going to fast, when you do, don't make a show of it. You don't do it to be seen by men. That's just pride. Instead, you fast to hear from God and discover His plan for you. And He says the hypocrites, these people that try, try to seem religious but they're really not, um, they, they try to fast as like a sign of their own spirituality. In fact, if, um, I've been, I was researching this this week and I was trying to find out when they fasted because the, there was... I had read that there, there were certain days a week that these religious leaders fasted. And I found out that it was uh, in, in the Talmud, which is like a commentary on Jewish life um, in, in, the, uh, in the ancient world. Um, it says that they fasted on Monday and Thursday. And then I, I was reading some more and it said, well, they fasted on Monday and Thursday. And the reason they gave was is that Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments on a Monday. And then 40 days later, he came down on a Thursday. And that's why they fast. Um, I, I, you know, which sounds kind of good, but I, then I started researching a little more. And here's what I learned, is that in the first century Jewish uh, life, um, Monday and Thursday were market days. That is, Monday and Thursday were the days that everyone from the countryside came into the city to buy food. So they would come in. Monday and Thursday were the days when everybody was thinking about food. Because that's when they'd come into the city, the markets would open, and they'd get their food for the next few days, and then go back, and then you know come back and whatnot. And um, and so the, these religious leaders, knowing that that's when everybody was thinking about food, they would walk around um, with their hair all disheveled, wearing old clothes, with dirt on their head as a sign of humility, and then some of them would even um, put white chalk on their face to really seem even more pale. They're like, so what are you guys here to do? Oh, we're here to buy food at the market. Yeah, I'd love to do that, but, you know, I'm fasting. Oh, well, I'm uh, okay. That's Yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm really close to the Lord. So I fast, you eat. That's interesting. Um, I'm really close to God, though, because I don't eat on these days. Although that sandwich looks delightful. Um, it really smells good. Maybe you could come a little closer to me so I could smell it more. You know, and, and so they kind of do this whole thing, right? Um, and, and listen, and here's what Jesus says. There's no reward in that. Because you're not doing it to seek God. You're doing it to just seem spiritual uh, to people. Um, about a year, year and a half ago, um, I had scheduled lunch with uh, a guy who's, you know, a friend of mine. Uh, we're not real, real close, but we're fairly close. And um, we, uh, we, So we had scheduled it about three or four weeks out. And so him and I both met at a restaurant, and um, so the guy comes over to place, you know, to place the order, and um, and so I tell him what I'm what I'm going to eat, and the guy, the other guy, my the guy I met with for lunch says, "Oh, I'll just have water." Sorry, server, could you wait? Dude, are you fasting? And he says, "Yes." And I'm like, "Then why didn't you just reschedule lunch?" Oh no, I didn't want to. I know, you know, I know your schedule's busy and I didn't want to disrupt that. I just, you know, but I, I, I am fasting today, so I'll just be drinking water. Um, and I said, are you sure you don't want to just reschedule this? And he goes, no, 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 it's, it's fine. And I said, all right, 
If you want to fast, that's fine. But I need you to understand two things before we go forward. Number one, I didn't eat breakfast. (laughs) Number two, your fasting is not going to stop me from consuming a lot of food right now. (laughs) So if you want to walk away, that's fine. But once my food gets here, it's on. All right. And um, and he's like, no, 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 it's fine. And um, sure enough, food came. I enjoyed a great lunch that day. And he watched. And then I ordered dessert just to be annoying. And uh, (laughs) uh, listen, pray for me. All right. Pray for me. That wasn't right. That wasn't right. I had to repent later of that chocolate cake um, for several reasons. Uh, now, now here's the thing. This is the point. The point is, is that in discovering God's vision for your life, you've got to understand the passion that God's put in your heart. But you've also got to be able to quiet your heart and hear from him so that we can actually channel that passion that we have in the right way. What we're going to learn in chapter two is that this whole thing begins in the month of Chislev, which is around November, December. We're going to get to chapter two. It's April, May. And Nehemiah still hasn't acted. He's still been fasting and and praying over the course of this time to make sure that this is what God wants him to do. Now, I know we've been talking about this and and I've given you kind of a cursory um, idea about fasting. Those of you that really are interested and want to know a little more about fasting, um, if you uh, on the back of your connection card, there's actually a a next step that says to learn more about fasting. If you check that off, um, we'll actually uh, we'll send you some info today. Um, about that. So, um, and I hope you're not fasting with the food trucks here because that's just going to, you're just going to miss out. Um, so, but anyway, so, but I'll, I'll tell you this, you know, when my wife and I, when we realized that we had a passion for this area and we realized that there was nobody preaching the gospel in this area 11 years ago, and we said, you know, what if we, we thought, what if God would call us to go and start a church here? And, um, and, and we just, and you know what happened is the more I talked about it, the more excited I got. And then here's what took place. Is that, but, and we could have just run after that. But instead what we did was we actually took a period of about three to four months where we just prayed and we just fasted for seasons of time so that we could know absolutely for sure that this is what God wanted us to do. And you know what happened? Every time we would fast, God would show us more clearly each time that this is what he wanted us to do. We'd fast and we'd skip the meals and we'd get into God's word and we would pray and then God would reveal to us what he, what he wanted us to do. Because my friends, if you're not aware, listen, God is still speaking. Thousands of years later, God hasn't stopped talking. But we have to quiet our minds and quiet our hearts to be able to hear him speaking. And listen, 11 years ago when we started this church, I didn't know one person in this area. I didn't know one person. My wife and I came here and I look at all that God has done. And I am absolutely blown away at what's, at what's taken place, at the thousands of people that have come to know Jesus, at the you know, over a thousand people that have been baptized here, here at Calvary, um, the, the thousands of people that have rededicated their lives to Jesus over the course of, of these 11 years. And listen, the only way we, my wife and I could have gotten the blueprint, because we're really not that smart. Uh, well, she's kind of smart, but not me. Um, but the only way we could have... We could have really gotten the blueprint and known exactly what God wanted us to do is by, by being able to take the passion that we had and then asking God, God, please direct that through fasting and prayer the way, way, the way that you want us to 
to do this. But then he doesn't even stop there. But it's like, well, he fasted and he prayed. Well, what did he pray? Well, look at what happens next. Look at verse 5. He says, And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant with mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Now, these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray, let your, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer, uh, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the last thing that I, I want you to note that I've got to understand my passions, I've got to hear God's direction, and here's the third one, is that I, I need to know God's word. There's something that I want you to note about Nehemiah, and that is that he quotes scriptures in his prayer that are directly related to the time in history that he finds himself. He recognizes in verse 8, and if you can take notes in your Bible, you may want to jot this down, but when he says... Um, he says, you know, this is what you said to your servant Moses, saying, if you were unfaithful, I would scatter you among the nations. That's a quote from Leviticus 26, verse 33, where God tells the people of Israel, before they even go into the promised land, if you walk away from me, I will scatter you among the nations. And God did that. But then he says in the next verse, in verse 9, he says, but, but, he says, but you also said, but if you return to me and keep my commandments, then I will gather them from here. And bring you back to the place that I've chosen as a dwelling place for my name. That's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 30, where God promises to bring them back. Nehemiah knows that the 70 year captivity has ended, but only a portion of them have returned. And this is the point. The point is, is that, um, it's always a great thing when we can quote the Bible in, in our prayers, not because we need to remind God of what He's said. Because sometimes we think that, like we tell God, God, you know, you said this in your word, and we're praying that as if God's like, oh, man, I totally forgot about that one. Whoa, man, it's been a while since I wrote this book, so all right, we'll do it your way. Um, it's, it's not that. Instead, we quote the Bible to remind us of what God has said, because when we remind ourselves of what God has said, as we pray, our faith is built up. You see, if you look at the, the structure of this prayer... Um, he says in verse 8, if you get that God fulfilled that promise, right? If you walk away from me, I'll scatter you. In verse 9, he says, but now do this. Fulfill the promise in Deuteronomy 30. And then he says this in verse 11. He says, um, let your servant prosper this day, and I grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What we're going to learn in chapter 2 is that after some months, Nehemiah is going to go in and talk to the king 
about the passion that's in his heart about rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. And that's when he's going to say, that's why he says, for I was the king's cupbearer. And we're going to unpack that whole thing next time and talk about what a trusted position that was. And, and we'll get into that um, in, in, in our next study. But the thing is this, and this is what's important for our purposes this morning or this afternoon. And that is that, listen, when we quote the Bible in context in our prayers, we can be sure that we're quoting, the, we're, we're talking the will of God. Not quoting any verse or any verse out of context, but instead when it's the right verse at the right time that we're communicating and praying God's will. That's why the Bible says this in the Psalms. It says in, in Psalm 119, 105, it says, For your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That God's word can give us illumination for what the next step that we're supposed to take is. So if you want to discover God's vision for your life and really see the blueprint of what God wants to do in your life, we've got to get into God's word. We've got to get God's word into our mind and get God's word into our heart so that God's word then begins to direct our steps. And and the deal is this, and this is the thing that I find so amazing in this book of Nehemiah, is that God is going to work things out in Nehemiah's life in supernatural ways that he could never have planned himself. But it simply begins... Very simply, was Nehemiah doing what he knew to do? And then, when Nehemiah is doing his part, God is orchestrating things behind the scenes that only God could do. And so listen, if you're here and you say, I want to discover God's blueprint for my life, I want God's vision for my life, then listen, then here's what I would encourage you to do. Seek God. Discover the passion that God has put in your heart for whatever that is, and as you do, then take the time to slow down and quiet your heart enough to hear from Him. And get God's Word in your heart that you might be able to channel that passion in a way that honors God and is part of the overall vision that God has and the overall mission that God has for humanity in reaching this world. Now, if you're here and you aren't a Christian, and you say, and I still want to know God's vision for my life, here's where it begins for you. Where it begins is coming to a place where you enter into a relationship with God. You see, when we talk about coming to know God or being in a relationship with God, we're not talking about like, oh, well, I know some Bible stories or I went to church with my parents as a kid or or something like that. Um, Or or maybe you're like me and you didn't really go to church at all um, for the most part growing up, except for a handful of times. But maybe instead, see, what we're talking about is someone coming to God Because Jesus Christ died for us on a cross, for all of our sins, for every sin that you and I have committed, past, present, and future. He died. He was innocent and he died so that those of us who are guilty might be made innocent. And so what happens is, is that when we come to him and we ask him to forgive us, we now experience a reconciliation between us and our Heavenly Father. And that's the beginning of God's vision for your life because God's vision for your life isn't just for now. It, it stretches all the way out into eternity. And the first place is the place where we experience God's forgiveness and love and peace and grace. And so if you're here this morning and you've never made that decision, listen, can I just in- encourage you in this? Listen, this is the reason that God brought you here today. There may be some other reason that, that kind of made you want to, want to come and be here this, this morning or this afternoon. But the reason that God wanted you to be here is so that you could hear the message that has changed the lives of hundreds of people in this room. The message that Jesus, that God became a man and died on a cross because you and I have fallen short of God's standards. We've all sinned. But God didn't leave us there. Instead, He sent His Son 
to prove how much He loves us. And then God paid the ultimate price to prove how much He loves us. And He offers us salvation and grace and forgiveness freely to show how much He loves us. And so if you're here this afternoon and you say, I didn't know that. I've known some things about God, but I've, I don't know God. Then listen, maybe this is your moment where you can call out to Him and He can hear your prayer and He can begin to change your life and begin to give you the blueprint for your life. And you can discover God's vision for your life. But it begins right here. So let's pray together. And God, I want to thank you for your love, that we see the cross and we know how much you love us, that you were willing to send your son into this world to pay the ultimate price so that we could experience ultimate forgiveness and ultimate grace. So God, I pray for those of us that know you, that we would walk in that forgiveness and discover your vision for us. And I pray for those of us who've never made that decision to follow you, that God, you would now, as we call out to you, that you would hear from heaven, that you would respond and begin to set us on a new path as you reveal yourself to us. Listen, um, while every head is bowed and every eye is closed and as we're praying together, if you're here and you're ready and, and you've heard me share this message and you've heard Jesus died for you and he wants to forgive you and you, you didn't know that, you didn't realize that, you'd never heard it in that way before, and you want to make that decision, then I want to lead you in a prayer. It's not a magic formula. They're maybe my words, but I pray that they're the words that you want to, that your heart wants to say to God, but maybe you don't quite have the words to say. And here's what I know that if you pray this prayer in sincerity, that God will act, that he will respond, and he will begin the process of transforming your life and revealing his vision for your life from this very moment. But it begins at the place. It begins at the cross. It begins of putting our faith in Jesus and asking him to forgive us. So if you're ready, I'm just going to ask you to repeat this prayer with me out loud. And just say, Dear God, I open my heart and I invite you in. I ask that you forgive me of all I've done wrong. I thank you for Jesus who died for me that I might have life. I want to follow you starting now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.